Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. To hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, Boston's Chinatown lost a pillar of its community this summer. MIT professor emeritus Tunney Lee, an urban planner, architect, and historian. Lee immigrated from China in 1938 at age seven. He spent his life shaping the growth of his Boston neighborhood, always working to preserve its history with an eye toward the future. Tunney Lee's research focused on community-based design and engagement. His Boston Chinatown Atlas, an interactive online platform, documents the history of Boston's Chinatown. Urban planners and historians say the Atlas is a -a one-of-a-kind project which will teach new generations the story of Chinatown within the context of Boston's history. Later in the show, feeling festive for fall? Foodies unite during a season of new culinary trends. We all still need to eat, and not all of us like to cook. So many restaurants around Boston are selling things, you know, whether it's prepared meals or the pantry items that you need to be able to make great meals, pastas, sauces, basically everything you need to be able to make a delicious meal at home, not quite the same thing as going into the restaurant and being pampered and having everything, you know, made for you, but it will up your home cooking game by, you know, a thousand degrees. Plus a new slew of local beverages. But first, joining me remotely, Angie Liu, Executive Director of the Asian Community Development Corporation. Welcome, Angie. Hi, Callie. Also with me, Brent D. Ryan, head of the City Design and Development Group and Associate Professor of Urban Design and Public Policy in MIT's Department of Urban Studies and Planning. Hi, Brent. Hello. And Stephanie Fan, founding board member of the Chinese Historical Society of New England. Thanks for joining us, Stephanie. Hi, Charlie. I'm delighted to have all of you, and I want to begin this way. I think when we we hear about the contributions and the history of somebody who's iconic work and and personage, really, like Tunney Lee, it feels very distant. So I'd like to begin the conversation by bringing Tunney Lee closer and ask each of you to tell me who he was, both as a community icon and as a person. And I'll start with you, Angie. Sure. Thank you very much, Callie. Um, you know, I, I've known Tony for as long as I worked in Chinatown, which is about seven years. And he was someone who was extremely well-known and, and respected in a Chinatown community uh, as an elder, as a teacher, as a, you know, living and walking historian of the rich history of Chinatown. As a person, even though he was an elder, to my knowledge, nobody called him professor. Everybody just called him Tunny. I remember him walking around Chinatown with his backpack and his walking stick, always eager and ready to 
um, give some facts about um, certain buildings or certain streets uh, in Chinatown. Hmm. Stephanie. Well, my connection to Tani goes uh, way back, actually, predates me, <laughs> because Tani's grandfather um, opened a uh, grocery store in Chinatown, and it was a grocery store where my dad was also a partner, um, even though they were like a generation apart. And so Tani and I have this, had this thing going with the grocery store when it was sold, it was sold to a Chinese bakery. And Tani used to tell me, he says, you know, he said, because my dad was a founder, every year we would get a coupon from the bakery entitling me to a box of pastries. And I was a little jealous because we never got <laughs> one. But he went in and he got his box of pastries every year. Um, and also, uh, I, know, I knew Tani through my uncle. My uncle studied architecture at MIT, and he and Tani were good friends um, because they had that shared interest in, um, in architecture. And so I always felt he was like this older generation. I, I wouldn't say he was an, an elder because I'm pretty old myself now, but he was, um, he was a, a different generation. And yet for Tani, you know, when he gets involved with a project, he doesn't care how old or how young you are or, you know, where you're from. He just gets into it and he and he respects everybody and he takes everybody's uh, input you know with a grain of salt sometimes but <laughs> he would respectfully listen and he he held the historical society to a standard um, which I appreciate he wanted to make sure that you know we were not just going on hearsay oh you know you heard that that the first Chinese settlers were in a tent but there's no evidence of that do you have evidence so he always you know he says you you term it correctly. You cannot just go and make all these claims. So he always held us to a high standard, which um, which was greatly appreciated. So Brent, so we've uh, heard from Angie and Stephanie. He's warm. He's a little bit funny. He's uh, exacting in his approach to making certain that, you know, what we know is, is absolutely true. And he was an elder and offered a lot to all generations. How did you know him personally and as a community icon? Well, I first met Tani uh, in absentia, as it were, because when I was first a student at MIT in the late 1990s, Tani was in Hong Kong. So I first met Tani as an international uh, entrepreneur who had been at MIT for some time, but who had then kindled this international connection between MIT and Hong Kong. And when I returned to MIT in 2009, I got to know Tani in person, and I got to know him I think first and foremost, as an incredibly warm and generous individual with respect to student education, long after he'd formally left the MIT faculty, Tony continued to teach a class every year where he would uh, not only bring students to China, he maintained a several-year connection to uh, studios, design studios in China, but he would mentor and teach students about the community development of Boston and very often take them on walks through Chinatown. So I learned everything I know about Chinatown from Tony as well through one of those walks. And uh, the the personal connection, did you feel some of the things uh, and see some of the characteristics as, as described by Angie and Stephanie? Absolutely. It was impossible to know Tony without uh, immediately feeling the warmth, generosity, and quality of character that he had. And Tony was uh, not only 
a wonderful colleague. He was a wonderful human being, both to me and my wife, who uh, is from Spain. And Tony would regale my wife with stories of his visits to Spain in the 1950s. So I think any Tony was someone who any connection he had with any individual person, he would always immediately reach out to strengthen that connection. It's the kind of person he was. He was a deeply, deeply empathic, warm individual. So Angie, as the executive director of the Asian Community Development Corporation, I want to put emphasis on the community piece of that, because uh, what I've heard about um, Tunney and his contribution is that uh, his focus uh, on design, on architecture, was always part of that had to be or really foundationally had to be about the community and, and community use and, and and what its meaning was going to be for the people who lived in the spaces. So before you uh, speak a bit about that, um, I want to give everybody a chance to hear him talking about the intersection of community and city planning. Architecture is just architecture, it's building. Who do you build for? Who pays for it? Where does it go? All those things are issues that Ideally, architects don't deal with. Planners do. Planners deal with these issues. So, you know, in some ways, if you're a young architect, say, be the best architect you can be, and also be the best citizen you can be, if you're talents of any help to people you care about. And again, that was just deceased Tony Lee, MIT professor, emeritus, urban planner, architect, and historian. So back to you, Angie. Uh, tell me about how uh, Tony Lee always put the community in his work. Sure. I know first, Callie, just to say that while it was uh, emotional and touching to hear his voice, um, I do miss him a lot. Um, so, you know, Tony, um, you know, from his generation, um, when he first went to study architecture and, and planning, the focus on community, that wasn't necessarily in vogue at the time in the 1950s and 60s. What we know about the legacy of that period, the dominant trend in urban planning was a very top-down, rather authoritarian approach where people really believe that uh, professionals, you know, professional architects, professional planners, government officials knew best, knew what was best for communities. And we ended up with massive urban renewal across wide swaths, all American cities, including here in Boston and including um, a big chunk of our Chinatown. I think um, the, the foresight of Tunney was that he turned that narrative upon its head and said it's actually really about community power and community control. And we indeed saw that burgeoning in Chinatown starting in that time. There was some resistance from the community against um, the eminent domain takings of row houses to make way for highways. Uh, even though people at that time in Chinatown weren't successful in stopping those takings. However, that legacy um, continued. And so when in the early 2000s, as part of the Big Dig project, Mass Turnpike Authority at the time was going to make one of the parcels in Chinatown available for redevelopment. 
many people in Chinatown, including Tunney, said, we need to look at the history of that land. That land had been taken from us, from the community, by the city um, and by the state 40, 50 years ago. And it's really the community that knows best what our current needs are. And so um, in the early 2000s, Tani was instrumental in leading the community through a visioning exercise that said, we needed to have affordable housing, open space and community center for Chinatown residents. What evolved eventually into the parcel 24 um, one greenway development that uh, my organization helped develop could not have happened without Tani's vision and leadership and really putting the Chinatown residents at the forefront of that struggle and advocacy. Mm. Can I add something there? Please, uh, definitely. I, I, think the, I think the other thing is how cities looked at low-income neighborhoods. And they were places that they wanted to eliminate, essentially. So that's what happened with the West End. And when they talked about building a highway through Chinatown, it was like it didn't matter if they were going to tear down these residential streets of Chinatown or if the highway was going to go through Roxbury, they were going to eliminate those. You know, it's just low-income people. We don't need them. And this happened in San Francisco after the 1906 earthquake. They wanted to get rid of Chinatown. They said, okay, we've got a good reason now to get rid of people. And um, fortunately, people in Chinatown said no. This land, we bought this land, we own these properties. You can't just kick us out of here because you don't like us. Like us. And so San Francisco turned it around, and I think you know Boston is still struggling with that, with that bit of it. But yeah, when Parcel 24 was open for bidding, um, the Historical Society also jumped into the fray and, and pointed out the history. Um, and we had people who had lived on Hudson Street uh, come out and talk about what it meant for them to be living in a neighborhood that was a community, not just a house or a building, a row house. It was a community, and that's what was being destroyed, and that needed to be um, built up again. Well, Stephanie Fan, while you're talking, founding board member of the Chinese Historical Society of New England, um, you're a good person to talk about Tunney Lee's Atlas Project, mm-hmm. a project that he worked on for 15 years in which he really was documenting the story of Chinatown. What's the community historical importance of that work? The work, um, the Atlas itself is very comprehensive. Um, we do tend to do a lot of, um, like when we do tours of Chinatown, we tend to throw in a lot of stories. And the Atlas gives us that foundation because it talks about Chinatown in, in the context of the city and talks about Chinatown in the context of history and how it's evolved um, since the late 19th century. It talks about some of the government regulations that have affected the community and how it's affected Boston's Chinatown. It talks about demographic change. So it's quite comprehensive. And as well, a thing that, you know, that I would have never occurred to us to do is, um, <laughs> perhaps why he calls it an atlas, is really the geography um, and the buildings in his atlas, he for every era that he talks about, he has a map um, to show that that impact. You know, and then looking at laundries, Chinese laundries, which were in vogue in the 40s and 50s, he had people help him map out 
pretty much every single laundry that he could identify in the Boston area. And he made a map of it. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah. Um, so now, Brent, I want you to pull this together because the Boston uh, Chinatown Atlas project is one of a kind. It's documenting the history, uh, as Stephanie has explained, but also infusing his focus of community and and what community means and what architecture and urban planning should represent when we say community. And if you would, uh, talk to me about how his philosophy was both employed in the Atlas Project, but also uh, over the his body of work and its importance in his doing that. Absolutely. So I think Tunney's work is so important and lasting for us because not only did he maintain his connection with the place he grew up by by living in Boston his whole life and remaining connected to Chinatown through his community connections, but he was able to generalize that knowledge and turn it into a larger activist design agenda, both in the United States and globally. At the same time, I think Tony was able to integrate his training as an architect with his training as a planner and to make that training in architecture and planning and that desire to have designers communicating with communities, have that training become an institutional part of the Department of Urban Studies and Planning at MIT. And the group that I'm head of, the City Design and Development Group, Tony was one of the founders of that group. And the whole reason why we have architects in a planning department as opposed to um, still thinking the way that uh, Angie and Stephanie talked about when there was this kind of top-down government planning is because through the work of people like Tunney in the 1960s and 1970s, we revolutionized the way we thought about urban planning and architecture to make urban planning and architecture a community effort. And I think that all comes from Tunney's work and efforts like the Chinatown Atlas that are I like to think that uh, there's as much of MIT in that Chinatown Atlas as there is in Chinatown because a lot of that work was sustained by MIT students, and Tunney could sustain that 10- or 15-year effort in part because he had some of the technological capacity of MIT. But I think it actually shows Tunney's dedication to helping communities that his the product of his uh, 15-year work was not just necessarily a book or an academic article, but it was a website that's designed to be accessible to the community. And that combination of desire for engagement and outreach, generalization, student education, and community empowerment, I think is really unique to Tunney Lee. And you've you've added that you think that there is global impact here as well as the rich local impact that you've just spoken about. Absolutely. What, what I learned about, and of course with Tunney, You didn't learn about this from him because he was personally such a modest individual. He never talked about his notable achievements. But one thing I learned, and it was probably around 2011 or 2012, was that Tony was one of the designers for Martin Luther King's Resurrection City in 1969. And I thought, wow, Tony Lee was right at the forefront of the civil rights movement as it registered in terms of the built environment. He was not working for the planners who were tearing down neighborhoods. He was working for the citizens who were speaking to government about their need for empowerment. And then later, of course, um, I came to participate in a series of urban design studios in China that, again, were established by Tony Lee um, in the 1990s through his work with a Hong Kong developer. So interestingly for us at MIT, Tony was as much a window to the international sphere 
Um, and our engagement with, with Tsinghua University in China is one of the longest-running uh, engagements with a Chinese university. It happened through Tani Li. So Tani was both our connector to our local uh, neighborhood organizations and our connector to the international context of planning. It's a fascinating, I think, window upon Tani's ability to simultaneously engage at the local and the international scale. I'm Callie Crossley, and you're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. My guests are Angie Liu of the Asian Community Development Corporation, Brent D. Ryan of MIT's Department of Urban Studies and Planning, and Stephanie Fan of the Chinese Historical Society of New England. We're discussing Tunney Lee's impact on the past and present of Boston's Chinatown and Boston itself. Um, Angie Liu, back to you. Now that Tunney has gone, how do you see him and what he did remaining a piece of the work that you're doing. I know you've spoken about just his his grassroots organizing and the impact that it had in your learning from him in, in that arena. I mean, I think he really uh, trained several generations, um, people, um, activists and residents in Chinatown in terms of how to advocate for ourselves in our community. One of the last projects he was involved with, uh, with my organization, Asian CDC, was for the last couple of years, we have a youth-led uh, walking tours of Chinatown. And he gave a lot of his time in working with both our high school youth, um, as well as our staff, to fine-tune the script, as well as all the facts on that walking tour, uh, much like uh, what Stephanie said in terms of what he did for the historical society. And through that, he um, got to mentor uh, many of our young staff and our youth. But it wasn't just the historical facts that he imparted uh, through these interactions. It was about how to look at the present fabric, the present physical spaces in Chinatown and thinking back, thinking about how Chinatown became what it is now. So for example, one of the questions he prompted our youth to think about is, why is Chinatown so small today? Why is it so gentrified? and so surrounded by luxury high-rise buildings, it wasn't always this way. Chinatown wasn't always the desirable neighborhood, such hot real estate as it is today. It once um, was considered a slum, an undesirable and crime-ridden area. And so I think um, that prompting the young people to really think about all the historical roots in terms of all the factors resulting Chinatown to what it is today um, and enables them to really question those assumptions and to question the decision makers, um, the city officials, and to demand more for the community. I think that's really what his legacy is. Um, in his uh, obituary done by the Boston Globe, his daughter was quoted saying that he loved cities and he loved one city in particular, which was Boston. And he used to say to me, she says, everybody should know at least one city well. So I want to give a, a listen. I want you all to take a listen to Tony Lee speaking about what it was like growing up in Boston's Chinatown. You leave the village in the town, you arrive in Chinatown, which is a very close community. Uh, partly by choice, but also partly by discrimination. But it was a classic urban village. It's uh, one in which 
uh, people knew each other and um, trusted each other, and it was a small, uh, small, few hundred families at the most. But it was certainly affected always my view of community, a view of neighborhoods, a view of how you, you know, it extends all the way to my professional life. I mean, it's like my interest in neighborhoods has, has always been there. That's Gain Tunney Lee speaking about what it was like growing up in, in Boston's Chinatown. So to you, Stephanie Fan of the Chinese Historical Society, you've said that his emphasis on not only that community connection, those very personal stories, that small community that he spoke about there um, and that you know so well, was really foundational in terms of building resilience and connection in the Chinatown community. Can you talk about that a bit? You know, I grew up in Chinatown as well. Uh, although it was uh, a generation after Tani, but we did go to some of the same institutions. Like we, you know, we both went to Chinese school. Um, but Chinatown can be very tribal as well. And yet Tani, um, because of his education, his background, the fact that you know that he taught at MIT, meant that people in the community had a lot of respect for him and they listened to him. Um, and so I think that was, you know, that. That has always been uh, one of the ways that he's been able to pull the community together to uh, to try and reinforce, you know, the strengths of the community. And the, one of the things that I really appreciate is because our ancestral roots are the same. They're they're rooted in the Toisan area of southern China, outside of Canton. Chinatown was always considered this this community that was low class and. You know, if you look at some of the the media, um, the newspaper reports back in the you know 40s and 50s, they would always talk about drugs and crime in Chinatown. And yet, Tony was always proud of Chinatown, and he he's told everybody, "You can be proud of Chinatown. It doesn't matter what other people say of Toysanese or of Chinatown. Chinatown has a strength and a resilience, and it has. I mean, to this day, I mean, there are people that I grew up with who I know that at the drop of a hat, they'll come together and do things um, to support the community, even though they don't live there anymore. It's still in their hearts. It's, you know, and I think that's what Tony is talking about. You get to know the city, a city really well. You know that community really well, and it's, and it's there. It's those bonds that were formed um, you know, growing up in Chinatown are still strong, and they're still there. Well, and also you can't build on anything if you don't know what the foundation is, and and Stephanie, your your family members are in, are pictures of them are included in his atlas. I mean, this is the level of detail that he has in that Boston Chinatown atlas, which I will remind my listeners again is a one of a kind project. It just has not been done anywhere else. Yeah, yeah, that's my uh, grandmother and my mom and uncle in that photograph. Well, that's pretty impressive. <laughs> yeah, my mom was she was just a baby at the time, <laughs> but you know, like a lot of times. Chinese Americans get this question, you know, like, where are you from? Mm -hmm. You know, and you say, well, I'm an American. I'm from America. I'm from Boston. It's just like, no, no, no. Like, where are you really from? You know, and I have to, to, you know, point out. I just look. My mom was born here. I was born here. My mom was born here. My grandmother came when she was like 20 years old. You know, so it's our roots in Boston are deep. Uh, Brent, I was interested in the fact that Tunney gave you a walking tour of uh, Chinatown. The I, I imagine similar to the tour that uh, he helped the young students working with Angie refine as a way of, of really showing people both what's going on there now and, and what it was. Uh, tell me about that experience and what you took away from it. 
Well, it's fascinating to have the privilege to visit in a neighborhood with someone whose roots are so deep because, of course, um, every place is full of meaning and it's full of different meanings for different people. And I think for because of the geographical location of Chinatown, it's adjacent to so many other areas of Boston, it's very easy to not be aware of the deep meanings that the um, locations of Chinatown hold for its residents. So Tony, for example, we were walking down the street and we turned into an alley and Tony said, see that building? Well, that's where I lived when I was eight years old. And it, today it's just, it's just any other building, but all of a sudden through Tony, of course, the place really came alive to me through his eyes, and I was able to see uh, Chinatown through his eyes and understand that uh, Chinatown had this 70- or 80-year history, most of which Tommy had actually experienced, because I think he himself moved to Boston when he was only seven years old, something like that. And the other part of Chinatown that Tommy was able to show us that's also, I think, difficult to understand if you're not uh, deeply knowledgeable about the efforts there is all of the struggle that Chinatown has had to assert its identity and to maintain itself in the face of the, what I would call the voracious redevelopment processes that Boston has engaged in. And they're really visible strongly in the maps. You see a highway coming through, you see all of this urban renewal, you see the railroad expanding, and you see all of the threats to American neighborhoods that happened over the course of the 20th century. And yet you see Chinatown, in a sense, holding its own and claiming space within that voracious redevelopment process. And that's really a lesson to um, not only urban planning students, but I think to practicing urban planners that um, community stability in the face of redevelopment only happens through struggle. And it was really empowering to see how Tony had been a contributor to that struggle over a series of decades and the, the fruit that it had borne in terms of the, um, the new developments in Chinatown, not just the old historic buildings, but the later buildings built um, in the 1960s through today that have resulted from that activism and from that community organization. So, Brent Ryan, what is Tony Lee's legacy as you see it? Tony has multiple legacies at MIT. Uh, the first that I already mentioned is the fact that one of the organizational features of our department is that what we call city design and development is is a part of the department. And I think Tony was a formative influence in the establishment of um, urban design within the city planning department. Another is the fact that we have a continuing relationship with Tsinghua University in Beijing, and I'm privileged to be one of the instructors who takes part in that studio. That has, a, it has an endowment at MIT that was helped to be gathered by Tony through his relationship with Paul Sun, um, a Hong Kong developer. And, of course, we have uh, not only the Chinatown Alice, but we also have the Density Atlas. It's another online um, resource that Tony created to instruct uh, communities around the world about the relationship between density as a statistical feature and as a feature of the built environment. And we have a legacy of 10 years or so of uh, China urban design studios that Tony, that Tony taught. So in many ways, Tony continues to be a living part of the work that we do in the Department of Urban Studies and Planning. Same question to you, Stephanie Fan. What is Tony Lee's legacy? Well, I think the fact that he created this atlas um, has given all of us that um, were interested in history and the story of Chinatown is just such a strong, comprehensive foundation. And he's made all of us who've um, connected with Chinatown um, be proud of this community, despite what other people might say about, you know, about a, um, an Asian community. He's made all of us proud. 
Um, he says, there's nothing to be ashamed of. Chinatown is a strong, resilient community. Angie Liu, Tony Lee's legacy. I would say Tony's legacy is really helping the Chinatown residents preserve Chinatown as a true living and breathing community. Unlike some of the other Chinatowns in other American cities, Boston's Chinatown still has uh, families, elders, working people living in it. And Tani um, taught us that that's really what makes a true community. It's about the connections between the families and the people. And so we've got to fight and do everything uh, we can to preserve that. Thank you all for joining me. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Karen. This was great. Angie Liu is the executive director of the Asian Community Development Corporation. Brent D. Ryan is the head of the City Design and Development Group and associate professor of urban design and public policy in MIT's Department of Urban Studies and Planning. And Stephanie Fan is a founding board member of the Chinese Historical Society of New England. Coming up, no one's looking forward to colder weather during this already grim year. But at least we have a winter wonderland of wines to look forward to. And this year's fall harvest is full of autumnal food trends. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap. That's Creole for something extra. As the cold weather sets in, we're welcoming a winter wonderland of wines. But the wine world has also turned sour as master sommeliers face their own Me Too movement. Plus, fall food trends are abundant for foodies this season, everything from avocado milk to a recent spice boom. Our food and wine experts weigh in on these stories and more. Joining me remotely, Jonathan Alsop, founder and executive director of the Boston Wine School and author of The Wine Lover's Devotional. Welcome back, Jonathan. Hey, Callie. And Amy Traverso, food editor at Yankee Magazine, co-host of GBH's Weekends with Yankee, and author of the revised and updated Apple Lover's Cookbook. Hi, Amy. Hi, Callie. I'm glad to have both of you. And I want to jump right in with some, you know, somewhat serious topics. I'm going to start with you, Amy. Let's just get an update on independent restaurants, Massachusetts Restaurants United and the Black Restaurants Coalition. They're trying to um, survive, really. Um, what's happening with them? Yeah, you know, there's there's a lot of organizations that are working um, to get the word out of how dire the situation is for independent restaurants right now. Um, locally, you know, there's several groups that are banding together under kind of the general umbrella of Massachusetts Restaurants United, but this is really very much a national effort. Um, and they're all pushing both for local grants or relief, especially if Massachusetts or separate municipalities end up closing down indoor dining, which will be almost a death blow to a lot of independent restaurants. But then there's the larger uh, Restaurants Act that is in the Senate right now. The Senate did not opt to pass this act, though the House of Representatives did pass it. They'll be back at the end of November, and everyone has kind of got their fingers crossed that this act, which would have $120 billion in aid, uh, will, will in fact be approved. But 
you know, it's just a really, really tough time for independent restaurants. And, you know, as we get into winter, there are certainly restaurants that are coming up with creative and delightful ways of doing outdoor dining. But Really, for most of them, they're not always set up to be able to pivot to takeout. They, their kitchens, fine, particularly the fine dining restaurants, their kitchens are just not set up for, you know, to-go burgers, and and they're they're just really struggling to figure out how to stay in business. And without news or information about, you know, whether any aid is coming, they're kind of just left like, you know, they're fish on a hook right now. They're just they can't plan. They can't figure out whether they should be buying food, how much food to be buying. They, you know, they can't promise their staff that they'll have jobs in, in a month. So all we can do as consumers right now is support these independent restaurants, you know, do whatever takeout they have. I'm not telling anyone to go do indoor dining if they're not comfortable with that. But, um, you know, I, I'm trying to sort of adopt a few independent restaurants in my own neighborhood and just support the heck out of them. Because right now that's all we can do until there is state, local or federal aid. Well, I agree with you about the support. And, you know, I, I noticed during the uh, ordering of the thanks, the special Thanksgiving menus, I know how hard that is. I've been telling friends who are like, I'm thinking about it. I said, no, you have to go ahead and order because they just can't order all that food right. and not and, you know, just wait on you to see if maybe you'll order. You have to do it now right. or or ahead of t- well ahead of time. So some you know people got it then and, and did it. And I'm glad they actually put um some deadlines so that they could, you know, plan. So, you know, you just have to be on top of your game if you're trying to support and be a little sensitive to that. And I think people are. Uh, let me move over to you, Jonathan, on another very serious story. And that's the wine world. Um, so this is going to seem maybe far-fetched to some people, but the master sommeliers are the people that when we had a lot of fine dining or at, uh, actually at some big events, you would see these people who have gone through all of this testing. I mean, they can, you know, practically look at a bottle and know what it, what it tastes like. It's very, very hard to get this this honor and achieve it. You have to do a lot of studying. Of the 155 people who have achieved the honor since 1997, when it started, 131 are men. And what we've now learned from the New York Times and other uh, publications is that one of the reasons is that a lot of the women uh, dropped out because of sexual harassment. So uh, this they are now having their own Me Too moment. Before you uh, comment, let's listen to Catherine Fayless. She's the fifth woman in the world to earn the title of Master Sommelier. And uh, she's talking about the recent accusations of sexual harassment within the Master Sommelier elite group. This is an apology to all of the survivors that were so brave to come forward and speak out about the horrible experiences that they had to endure. This is an apology to all of those that in addition have endured and have not yet come out. And I can only encourage you when you find the strength and you believe in the forums that we're providing, that we're building to communicate that you will feel that you will be heard. So Jonathan, a lot of uh, fallout from this, big resignations. Um, It looks like there's going to be massive change, but my God, a lot of those women suffered. And I'm not mentioning on the air some of the stuff that they suffered, but it was a lot and it was horrible. It it is um, well. You you started out talking a little bit about some of the some of the numbers in this uh, court of master sommeliers. Sixteen uh, percent of U.S. master psalms are women, and right now, almost six percent of the male membership 
is suspended, has resigned, or has lost their credentials in the aftermath of these sexual harassment realizations. I mean, when you think of, about it, sadly, there are already in place so many of the elements um, that almost make something like this inevitable in this world. You know, the private club, you know, the all-male origins atmosphere, the boondoggle trips, the perks from suppliers, the whole hierarchical nomenclature, you know, master of wine, really, um, master psalm, and pour on top of that vast amounts of alcohol, and you mash all that up together, and it's just a recipe for exactly the kind of emotional emotional abuse and sexual manipulation and everything that these women um, endured. Well, they're, they're, you know, now with all these people um, having been forced to quit, I mean, there's some changes in place, mm. even though a lot of women, you know, just dropped out. They just couldn't take it anymore. So, yeah. um, so that's a loss. But you know, I have to hope that uh, in each of these arenas, as we discuss them, not just in the wine world, of course, uh, it's it's good to see that Me Too um, has had some really important impact. Um, well, and even absent the sad, terrible Me Too component of this, um, people for a long time have been asking, you know, very reasonably, um, you know, what is the meaning of this organization? What is this group? Do we really need this profoundly hierarchical system? You know, is it not something that just is open to abuse? So pe pe people have been questioning its value and and the aftermath, the aftermath of this is entirely possible that this is like an extinction. This is entirely possible. This is like an extinction level event for the court of master psalms and the whole idea mm. of what a psalm is and what a psalm does. And, you know, people ask me all the time if I'm a psalm, and I always say no, because I'm not. Um, these days I say hell no. Yeah. Based on what I've read, I might be saying good riddance at this point. So mm. <laughs> let's, uh, let's move on to some, some other topics. Amy, again, in this moment where we're trying to support restaurants, restaurants are doing really interesting things to survive. And one of the things that they're doing is reimagining themselves as community kitchens so that um, not only can customers buy everything uh, from, the, you know, that, that is, was made in the restaurant, like homemade stocks. And you mentioned Fox and the Knife, which I'll let you talk about. But after I, you know, read your note, I realized that Honey Grow, which is one of my new favorite mm. restaurants, they sell their sauces as yes. well. Yes, yeah. I mean, it's, it's becoming you know, one way to have some some reliable revenue. Um, we all still need to eat and not all of us like to cook. So um, restaurants, many restaurants around Boston are selling things, you know, whether it's prepared meals or um, the kind of, yeah, the, the pantry items that you need to be able to make great meals. Um, Fox and the Knife, like you said, they're selling their incredible pastas, their sauces, basically everything you need to be able to make a delicious meal at home. Not quite the same thing as going into the restaurant and being pampered and having everything, uh, you know, made for you. But you know, it will up your home cooking game by, you know, a thousand degrees. Um, uh, Sofra, I just stopped by there actually the other night to get some stuff and, you know, they, they are 
they are basically operating as a fully takeout operation. You don't go into the restaurant, um, but you can buy all their, you know, wonderful spreads and uh, pastries and, um, you know, there's prepared meals, but there's also a lot of ingredients and spices that you can buy. Alcove, uh, you know, in um, near the garden, I still call it the garden. <laughs> um, uh, you know, they, they have, they, they have a whole market. They sell everything from ingredients to cocktails to books and flowers and some kitchen stuff. I mean, they are, they have really expanded their, their offerings. Um, and, you know, if we remember back to the beginning of the pandemic, there were restaurants that were selling, you know, bags of flour because a lot of the issue with food scarcity that we were experiencing in supermarkets wasn't so much the the food didn't exist. It was the food wasn't packaged for consumers. They had run out of the consumer sized packaging of flour. They were still there were still plenty of 25 pound bags of flour. Restaurants have access to that those larger uh, portions of ingredients and they can divide them and sell them. So um, I think, you know, as we go into these winter months, um, I'm, I'm hopeful that, you know, restaurants will be another source of fresh ingredients for us and that this will be a source of revenue for them when maybe certain things become scarce in supermarkets. Well, and of course, shout out to the fabulous uh, Karen Akonowicz, uh, the fox and the knife, always being creative of how she uh, keeps that restaurant yeah. going. Uh, let me also talk to you about uh, saving restaurants just very individually. This is a local favorite, Deluxe Town Diner in Watertown. There is a GoFundMe uh, campaign going on. This is something a few restaurants have, have tried. It seems to have been effective. They actually just hit their target. They, they've reached $100,000 as of this morning. Um, so they are fully okay. funded. Um, and, you know, chances are people will donate over the requested amount because it's so beloved. Um, and I think, you know, it's, it's very encouraging to see the neighborhoods really kind of surround their beloved restaurants with support. I was speaking with Douglas Williams of Mita last week, and, you know, it certainly hasn't been a great year, but the neighborhood has truly uh, propped up the restaurant and they are working like crazy to get their amazing food out to everyone. And they're doing a lot of takeout business and really they're feeling pretty, not, it's hard to say they're feeling optimistic. I think they're feeling extremely grateful and they're feeling like the yes. sky is not falling on them. Um, I think, you know, the stories, you know, that restaurateurs will set, tell you are, they vary very much, you know, according to uh, whether their food is adaptable for takeout and, and whether they are in a neighborhood where there's that kind of support. You know, it, it, it's not all it's not all horrible news. Uh, and it's it's really encouraging to see these bright spots. Yep, I agree. I'm Callie Crossley, and you're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. My guests are Boston Wine School's Jonathan Alsup and Yankee Magazine's Amy Traverso. We're discussing the latest fall food and wine trends this season. All right, Jonathan, there's a couple of uh, new uh, faces on the block in your world. First, this is a young woman I just heard about. Uh, her name is Krista Scruggs, mm -hmm. and she has a winery uh, in Vermont. I'm going to ask you about uh, whether you've tasted the wine. But anyway, her, her wine is uh, Zaffa Wines. This is a black woman, and she's focused on making natural wine in an industry with very little diversity. Let's take a listen. 
people thought I was a fool and <laughs> did not understand why someone from California would go to make wine in Vermont. It was the best decision I've ever made. I honor tradition, but you know, when tradition also doesn't doesn't represent you, I think you have no choice but to break those rules. So, Jonathan, are you were you aware of uh, her her winery and her wines? Yes, yes. Um, she, uh, Krista Scruggs, is just she's just a fantastic fantastic story from a farming uh, family, and um, her first job in wine was working as shipping coordinator for Constellation Brands, which is a giant hmm. multinational wine company. Um, and she quit that and began to study winemaking in France and has the winery in Burlington, Vermont, and is farming um, outside Burlington. It's really something. Some other, well, new to me, but apparently not new to their rabbit fans. Treehouse Brewing, these mm -hmm. are beer people, and they're opening up a Cape Cod location, and people are losing their minds. I guess they're <laughs> really happening. <laughs> what do you say? <laughs> well, it's well, it's nice to it's nice to have some good news to be looking forward to, and Treehouse has announced that they're opening the tap room, tasting room in Sandwich this summer, and they're gonna open another one in Deerfield uh, sometime in 2021. Uh, Treehouse is one of the fastest growing breweries in the United States right now. Treehouse is a favorite of wine lovers because of all the similar elements we find between their beer making and wine making. Um, you know, they make something, they make a beer called At Ease, uh, which is oak mm. age. Do you like it? I want to know if you like it. Do you I, like it? I, you know, I am maybe a little bit more traditional. Last summer, I went out to pick up pizza and one of my daughters said, would you get some beer? And I said, what kind of beer should I get? And she said, she said, could you get some beer flavored beer? <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Oh, so it's getting too fancy for you, is what you're with saying. Chrysanthemum <laughs> flower. Um, so I'm a little bit more of a, of a traditionalist, but from a wine lover's perspective, that oak is very, very familiar. Um, mm. You know, they make a bourbon barrel aged barley wine that's 14% uh, alcohol. So now we're starting to have chemical reactions going on in some of these beers that are sim similar to the chemical reactions that are going on in wine and wine lovers start to recognize those things in these uh, treehouse brews. So yeah, great stuff. Hmm, interesting. All right, Amy, I want to talk to you about uh, some trending that we're seeing um, with foods. First of all, spice boom. And I have to say, I'm one of those people that has 9 million spices. So so they're speaking yes. to me. Yeah. The, the <laughs> difference between the kind of comfort cooking that we're doing now compared with what we were doing after, say, 9-11, when comfort food had another big spike in interest, um, is we have more time at home to cook than we did back then. The world's, you know, we've been home for a long time. We're staring at the same walls. We're staring at the same people. One way we can make things a little more interesting is with our cooking. And so happily, there's a lot of great food content out there. And I think one, one of the great results of the reckoning that the food world has also had over the past five months in, in looking at how sort of white and Euro, Euro dominated it has been, has been this, you know, 
a, a real diversification of, say, the recipes that the New York Times is is running in its pages. And Bon Appetit has like really, you know, totally reworked its own lineup and staff. And so um, I, I think that in turn is leading to an interest in more in more spices, more flavors. Also, you know, I think um, a lot of spices have health benefits and we're certainly all looking to eat foods that make us feel healthier, that boost our immune systems. And so things like turmeric and garlic, chili and ginger are, you know, have known health benefits. And so people are, are really buying them. And luckily, you know, there is there's there are more and more independent spice companies coming up. I mean, in, here in, in in the Boston area, we have Curio Spice. We have several great spice companies. We can actually at least access uh, locally, um, you know, curated spices and blended spices. Um, the sales of McCormick and Company up thirty five percent over last year. That was in August, uh, a sampling, a survey, and they apparently the company expects every you know holiday season for it to go up. But this for them was like wild. And I have to say, those TV ads, I'm such a sucker. I'm all into the nostalgia when they put the little cans on there, and there I am. So, <laughs> so it's working. It's working for. I'm so obvious. It's working for me. Yeah, all the big companies. <laughs> Penzies is seeing a big <laughs> jump in their sales. Um, yeah, spices are are good. And I, I see it just as a great sign that people are, you know, cooking more, but but cooking more interestingly too. Mm. All right. I just debunk this avocado milk thing. So it's <laughs> oh it's for everybody who wants to know, it's oat milk with some avocado in it. But why is it so What's what's why is it exciting? I think, I well, understand. I think it's I think we're, we are definitely in this funny, you know, we like novelty with our our vegan milks. Um, the thing that I like about it. So this is this is called avocado milk. It's really oat milk with dehydrated avocado powder in it. The nice thing is that the avocados that are used to make the powder are avocados that wouldn't sell. They're sort of ugly, maybe they're bruised. And so it's part of another trend, which is kind of upcycled foods. Um, foods that can't be mm-hmm. sold as is in the markets because they don't meet the various, you know, standards of beauty or, um, you know, perfection, but are perfectly edible. So I, I like the avocado milk for that. Um, oat milk is also uh, less of a, it, it requires fewer inputs than say almond milk, which requires a lot of water to grow almonds in uh, areas where there isn't a lot of water. Um, so the avocado, uh, almond milk has has some problems associated with it, whereas uh, oat milk is pretty, pretty uh, low input. And then adding these avocados that would otherwise go to waste, you know, what's like, what's wrong, what could go wrong? And, and, you know, it's pretty and it's novel and it, it, it doesn't really taste that much different, but it has a slightly richer uh, texture to it. Got it. Jonathan, I want you to uh, wrap up here with your winterizing wine suggestions. Give us your top tips. Well, one of the things that we start to do as we contemplate a long, dark winter on on many fronts is, um, one, take advantage of holiday sales that are going on now to fill the basement up with a little bit of wine. Um, and um, another thing is to um, is to think about that and have a have a plan um, have a have a scheme for what you're going to be uh, for what you're going to be drinking this winter. Um, I always uh, think about last summer. Um, you know, this summer for us has been the summer of Vino Verde, 
Um, that por Portuguese, that super light Portuguese wine, super affordable. Gr grab a case of that so you can, you know, relive um, a little uh, taste of summer uh, during the winter. Um, you know, we talk about how our cooking changes and our eating changes. Um, we really want to go for some food-friendly wines. And I think, I know this is super obvious, uh, but probably the three most food-friendly wines on the planet are Rioja from Spain, Chianti from Tuscany in Italy, and then the Cote de Rhone in the south, south of France. So I'm always looking to to load up on super food friendly wines. And finally, let's keep things fresh. Uh, you know, there, there's, there's, there's nothing wrong with uh, drinking your favorite white wine and your favorite red wine forever and ever, uh, but it's also nice to mix it up a little bit. So, you know, a case of um, all grapes, uh, all grapes you've never heard of before, all places that you've never had wine from before. And um, people are drinking more and more at home. And what we're advocating is, you know, keep it more and more interesting all the time. That's what I say. And, um, and there's lots of good um, inexpensive wine. It doesn't have to be, you know, oh, yeah. so expensive. So we'll be looking for your list um, for our website, the Under the Radar <laughs> website, so people can see exactly what you suggested there. Definitely. Um, also, also on that website is going to be a little, a little conversation with Amy about her revised book on apples, because this is apple time, and we want to. I can't have enough. That's that's all I say. But right now, I want to thank you both for joining me, and uh, I will talk to you down the road. And We'll just hang in here together, supporting the restaurants and all of our all of our friends in the hospitality business, and and I'm wishing yes. for the best. Absolutely. Thank you both. Thank you, Callie. Thank you, Amy. Thank you. Jonathan Alsup is the founder and executive director of the Boston Wine School and author of the Wine Lovers Devotional. Amy Traverso is the food editor at Yankee Magazine, co-host of GBH's Weekends with Yankee, and author of the revised and updated The Apple Lovers Cookbook. That's it for this week's show. Find us on the web and wherever you get your podcasts. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH, produced by Hannah Ubele and engineered by Dave Goodman. Kate Dario is our intern. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. See you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening. 